Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer, as always. Today, we've got our Thursday deep dive episode. On this episode, we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today, we have on the show, Lee Andro, and we're talking about Copart. Leandro has been on the show a number of times, so people that are regular listeners might be familiar with some of his other episodes, but he seems to be a fan favorite as all the episodes that he's come on and discussed companies we've gotten... Uh, really, really strong listenership numbers on those. So uh, people must love him for a reason. And, and and we enjoy listening to him every time we talk to him. And Copart was no exception. So I'm excited for you guys to hear this one. Uh, no ad today. So without further ado, here's our interview with Leandro. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today we have on... We did the math right before we uh, came on. I think four-time guest, uh, Leandro from Best Anchor Stocks. He's the author there. Um, go ahead, check it out. You're probably familiar with him if you've listened to the show on a recurring basis. But I think in our in our past episodes, we've discussed Adobe, Constellation Software, and ASML. We're going with another, I guess, maybe you could call it high moat business. Uh, mm-hmm regarded as high quality. So I guess before we dig into Copart, which we're going to discuss today, let's. I always kind of find it fascinating to see how people come up with their ideas. So how'd you come across Copart to begin with? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me, Ryan and Brett. Uh, it's nice to be here for the fourth time. I think actually the last one was a few months ago. So it's great to be here again. So if if I'm honest with you, I don't remember exactly how I came across Copart, but I think it was thanks to Chris Mayer. So sometimes I source ideas by looking at the portfolios of investors who I respect. And I think this might be one of those times. So of course, I don't simply blindly buy it after, but the portfolios of people who I respect are actually a great source of idea. So that was step one. Then... The first thing I did was buy the book from the founder, Willis Johnson, which is called From Junk to Gold. So I, I not only I found this book entertaining, but also a great reflection of the founder's vision, will, which obviously still lives today in the company because he's still involved. He's not the CEO, CEO anymore, but he has a significant stake. So after reading that book, I decided to start researching the company. So I think the company had some characteristics that were appealing from the start. So it operates in a boring oligopolistic industry with very high barriers to entry and it has a long runway ahead. So I think just those characteristics call for a, for a closer look. And it's also not, it's not the typical company that makes headlines. So it's actually very tough to come across it if just by scrolling news feeds, but I think that in fairness, this is something that I like about it because it's easy to hold. So for many companies, you are going to face a continuous stream of news, but this is not the case for for Copart. So separating the signal from the noise in Copart's case is pretty easy because you don't get news. You only get news actually like every three months because you're getting the the earnings. So I think that's an underrated advantage for any investment because it it actually helps investors focus on the company and and the long term. Yeah, I agree. I I love the companies that we have that 
don't really seem to care about the quarterly stuff or give us sort of just what we need to know always makes me fret or worry a little less. But I guess let's go through Copart's business model. You mentioned some of the characteristics there. We can talk about those in a second, but can you give us kind of the basics? What what does Copart do? How do they make money? And then maybe talk about the um, different stakeholders within their business. Mm Yeah, so so Copart basically operates an online auction platforms where sellers and buyers come together to to transact salvaged cars. Uh, there are also cars that are not salvaged cars, so used cars, but the majority of of the volume will will be salvaged uh, vehicles. So it's a two sided marketplace, and you have buyers on one side and sellers on the other side. And Copart is basically the enabler of the transaction. The sellers are primarily the insurance companies. So when a car is in an accident, it triggers a decision-making process for the insurance company. And there are basically two outcomes. One, does it make sense to repair the car? Or two, does it make sense to total the car and pay the pre-accident value to the customer? So you basically have to make a decision between those two. Uh, The pre-accident value is what the car was worth before before the accident. So the the decision is actually based on a mathematical formula. And it's also important to understand that the insurance company is always going to lose money after an accident, but they are going to try to choose the option based on where they suffer the lowest economic loss. So for example, if the repair cost if the repair costs are higher than the difference between the pre-accident value and what the insurer can make for the total car at, at auction then the insurer will choose to total the car. So the rationale in this in this particular scenario is that the insurer loses less money by totaling the car, uh, paying the pre-accident value, and then uh, trying to make up for, I don't know, three or 4K through, through auction. This might be a bit confusing, uh, <laughs> just like for listeners. So I'm going to give a brief example with numbers. So let's imagine that a re- that the repair of a car costs uh, 8K, okay, so it's $1,000. The pre-accident value is $10,000 and the insurer could recover $3,000 at auction. In this case, totaling the car is the preferred scenario because the insurer is only going to lose 7,000 because they are going to pay 10,000 in pre-accident value, but then they are going to make 3,000 through the auction. Um, so that, that when you net those, that gives you $7,000. So obviously losing $7,000 is better than losing $8,000 that costs to re, to repair the car. So when, when the repair costs are higher than the pre-accident value minus the auction value, then that car ends up in Copart because Copart is responsible for, for the auction or, or the insurer will sell that car through Copart or IAA whatever of those two, or maybe through our mom and pop shop, but probably through through those two. And then you also have the other scenario where imagine that repair costs are $5,000, the pre-accident value is $8,000, and the insurer can only make $2,000 at auction. In this case, the difference between the pre-accident value and the, and the auction value is $6,000, but the repair costs are just $5,000. So in this case, an insurer will say, okay, I prefer to repair the car because it, it only costs me $5,000. And the other scenario is, is $6,000. So there are, of course, other sellers like charities and financial institutions. So for example, if if you have uh, if, a, if a financial institution has a car as collateral for something, and that car ends up with the financial institution. In many cases, they will choose to sell the car fast through Copart or IAA and get and get money for it. And but well, the majority of of the volume is driven by by insurers. This is the only. This is just the the sellers. <laughs> Are you like? Do you have any questions? Because the the buyers is much easier to understand. I think. No, no that, I think I that's mean, good. Makes yeah, sense. that makes sense. And mm. it's, so it's just a. Uh, kind of rehash it's the post after an accident insurance companies basically take the car assess the value see whether it's better to repair or total it and then if it's totaled it typically goes to copart um and i guess we're going to talk about competitors in a second but is it 
kind of is Copart kind of the primary player here, or do they kind of uh, do they have existing relationships with Copart, or do they like auction it off, or like are they bidding one of the auctioneers against the other auctioneers? I'm cu- curious how the competitive landscape works there. Yeah, so there are two two main players in the industry, Copart and IAA, which is Insurance Auto Auctions. Uh, these two players make up like 80% of the volume of the, interest in, of the industry and the remaining 20% is mom and pop shops that have like independent yards. And historically, this was evenly distributed across both players, but l- lately we've seen Copart take a uh, share from IAA. For example, the IAA lost uh, Geico as a customer and the, the volumes went to Copart. And actually, it's funny because reading the IAA earnings call from the moment that happened, um, management was quoting the volumes net of a big customer loss. So that was like a huge red flag for me. It's like saying, yeah, our volumes are are up 4%, excluding the loss of this customer. Well, obviously, you need that customer because it's, it's, it's a very concentrated space, the, the seller space for these companies. Because insurance companies are typically very large. So the relationships are really, really important. And I think that's where Copart has made the difference uh, with respect to IAA. So, yeah, that, that I, I don't know how you can report revenue excluding customer <laughs> losses. But the uh, logistically here, it's Copart has basically these yards that the insurance providers bring them to. Is, is that kind of what I'm getting? So, so Copart has like a comprehensive service that signs like long-term contracts with some insurers. So when an accident happens, uh, then Copart will be responsible for everything from that moment. So towing the car to their facility, putting it in the, on the action page, and then they'll obviously insurers will pay for this, for this service, a fixed amount. And then Copart is just takes care of takes care of of everything. So that's how it goes. It's not like the 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 car stands at the insurer and then they simply auction it. That car has to end up in one of Copart's yards, and then from there they take the pictures and they put in put them to auction. So one little follow up on that: How do they manage the inventory on the balance sheet? Is it difficult, or do they have? since given their size, is it not really an issue for them? Because I kind of think similar, and obviously they're not in as big as trouble as Carvana, but it seems similar to me where you have to take a little bit of inventory risk and it might not be as bad because they're salvaged stuff, but you have to take the inventory and then sell it off. Is that any sort of issue or is it really worth it? But they're not the buyer. Are they not? They, they don't take, they don't take the, okay, yeah, they cool. don't take the ownership of the car. So, um, but even if they don't like, it doesn't appear in inventory, having a car stand for too long in your yard, that's also an expense, obviously, because that okay. car so is taking like, the space. Yeah. It's like phantom inventory almost. Am I getting yeah. that right? Okay. And But the, the rotation, like I wouldn't be worried here because the rotation is quite fast. Actually, one of the yeah. main limitations of the of the inventory getting sold is the regulation that happens before you can deem a car a total loss. So until it gets the salvage title, that's actually pretty slow. And if they could speed that up, then Copart will would rotate the inventory faster than it does now. Interesting, interesting. Okay, now let's go through the buyers. I'm assuming they're use maybe junk. I don't know what they would be. You tell you tell us what it, what it would be. And is there any other big parts of the business that investors should be aware of? So so buyers are much more a much more fragmented group. Uh, you can find here car dealers, dismantlers, rebuilders, or even the general public. Like you can go on Copart and maybe find a car that you like and you think that you are going to be able, maybe it's not in salvage condition and it's just a used car and you can, and you can buy it. Um, of course, it's, it plays to Copart's strength that the buyers are fragmented because they don't have leverage against Copart. So. One of the main criticisms that Copart, Copart gets is that it treats sellers very well, but it doesn't treat buyers as well. And while I think this might be true, like most of the fees are made with the, with the buyers, but um, this makes sense. Like if you have a seller group that you your inventory or your volume depends on that seller group, then you're going to do whatever you can to add a lot of value to them. 
But if your and if your your buyers are going to be there because you have a very good inventory, like that's your value add for the buyers. Like I'm a, a rebuilder, I need this part, and I know that Copart has a car that has this part. So then I'm going to go to Copart, and I have no choice because if that car is in Copart and not in IAA, then I have to go to Copart to get it. So obviously Copart focuses on the sellers because it's it makes much more sense for them. I don't think they treat the the buyers bad, but obviously most of the money is made through the buyers and when the price increases are made to the buyers mainly and not to the sellers. All right. Yeah. That's a great overview of how the business works. Let's go through the financials though. Uh, Just walk us through that. What are their costs? What kind of margins do they generate? I'm curious because this is such a unique business model, what Mm -hmm. their major cost structure is. And then if I can add one more, and I think Leandro, you're maybe about to touch on this. How do they, do they just take a percentage of kind of the difference? Is that the majority of their revenue? Okay. So the company makes money through several ways. Um, the most relevant is service fees. And these service fees, they, as, as the enabler of the transaction, they take a fee based on the transaction value. So the, they will take a higher fee if the car is being sold for $7,000 than if it's being sold for $2,000. And they also take other fees. For example, buyers, to buy on Copart, you need to pay a subscription. So they also take that. Then sellers also pay Copart to take care of all the towing and, and all the services, the additional services. So that's the most of the revenue. And then they, but, but Copart also has a smaller revenue stream that is purchased vehicles revenue. So from time to time, Copart will go to the market, Would they will buy cars and then they will resell them at a higher price. And they typically, well, they do this for, for two reasons. The first one is um, because sometimes when the used car prices are high, pre-accident values are going to be high and the total loss ratio, so the cars that end up going back to the mathematical formula that we talked about for the insurers is going to be to make the probability of a total loss lower when the high used car prices are when used car prices are higher because obviously it, it makes more sense to repair if the pre-accident value is very high um so sometimes to make up for that loss of volume they'll purchase cars to keep to have a, a good inventory for for their buyers and the other reason is also because copart when it's going into international geographies this model the the service model is very established in the us but in other geographies, it's not. So to convince the insurers, for example, in Germany, Copart is taking ownership of the car and reselling them on their webpage just to tell the insurers, hey, look, this model works until these insurers trust it, and then they switch to the, to the service model. So that's, those are the two revenue streams, but service fees made up around 80% of sales in 2022. So that's the majority of the revenue. Makes sense. All right, and then the financials. I guess any relevant context there that you have to share with the listeners and what are their primary costs? What leads down mm-hmm. to that net profit margin or cash flow margin? Mm-hmm. So just to get a, cra- a grasp for people that don't know of Copart size, the company generated around 3.5 billion in in revenue last year. Uh, the growth was very solid in 2022. It was 30% uh, sales growth. Uh, but of course, it was also aided by high used car prices because the transaction value in Copart's platform also goes up if used cars if used car prices uh, go up. I think we we'll, we can touch on this later of how used car prices impact the company. Uh, the pandemic year obviously was a bit more muted in terms of growth because there were less car less cars on on the road. Although actually, this is interesting because Copart is 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 a bit also. Um, insulated from a recession and the fact that there are less cars because when there are less cars people tend to speed more so accident severity can go up during a recession and well but even during the pandemic the company managed to grow eight percent so the the company has basically doubled revenue over the last the last five years which is pretty impressive i think for such a perceived boring industry so to say or boring company so besides this fast growth the company also has very strong margins. So the gross profit margin is around 45%. And I know listeners might, might be saying, well, that's not high. 
But this is because the most important costs are embedded here, which are the costs related with the yard operations. And these are towing and labor. So towing and labor are the, mo the two most important costs that go into, into cost of revenue. Um, so they have been seeing increased costs from both of these due to inflation. But then obviously there's a lot of leverage in the in operating expenses. So they end up with a net income margin of around 30%. So you have gross margin of 45%, and then you have net income margin of 30%. So that, that just tells you that most of the costs are, are obviously in, in cost of goods. And so it's obviously a, a highly profitable company. I would say here it's something important to bear in mind um, is that margins can be a bit misleading when you can compare them to, to for example, IAA, because Copart buys the land where it has the, like buys its yards and takes ownership of, of its yards and yards are not amortized. So they completely bypassed the, bypass the income statement. Whereas IAA leases the yards, so they do see those expenses going into the to the income statement. So I would caution against, well, you, you can compare them, but you have to make some adjustments. Like if you look, if you get the numbers at face value, you'd say, whoa, Copart is much, much more profitable than IAA. But then when you adjust those numbers, Copart is still more profitable, but the, um, the difference is not so large. Obviously, this bypasses the income statement, but affects the cash flow statement because obviously land is a capex expense. And you see that Copart spends significant amount on capex and the majority of it goes to land, but they still end up with free cash flow margins of around 16%, which I think is, is pretty healthy, healthy, considering also that they are making this investment these investments in an appreciating asset, which is land. It's not like you are making the investment and you are going to lose economic value. I, I read some, I forget what blog I read it on. I think it was, I'm, I'm blanking on it, but I read something that when they purchase the land, it's sometimes hard to like get the rights to have a salvage yard. Is that right? Yeah. So that that's part, that's part of the moat because um, well, Copart has been um, buying land for decades. So obviously, many cities they they typically buy these these yards in the outskirts of the cities. But many cities have grown, and now these yards are pretty close to the to the city. And you're basically it's basically very difficult to get a permit to have a salvage yard because nobody wants the salvage yard on their backyard, and they are actually. Um, known to be like has like hazardous um, territory because you have like old cars and that is there's a lot of pollution from from that so it's actually quite difficult maybe you can get yards but you cannot get them in the same location as copart has them because maybe copart bought it 20 years ago interesting you mentioned the used car prices i saw on one of your recent write-ups there's kind of positives and negatives to the used car prices. So can you explain how the changes in used car prices affect Copart's business? Yeah. So, so when I started researching Copart, my first thought was like, well, this company is going to be like really dependent on used car prices. So it's going to be highly volatile, especially since we've seen a lot of volatility in used car prices coming out of the pandemic. But then when you start to look at the company, you actually see that the company is quite insulated from from high from used car prices in general. So, for example, in the current environment with high used car prices, the total loss ratio, so the percentage of cars that are in an accident and get totaled, is going to decrease because, as I said before, the pre-accident values are going up, so it makes more sense to repair the car. So then they see less volume from high used car prices. But then at the same time, as they take a fee from the, of transaction value, as transaction values and average selling prices are going up, they are making more money because it's, it's a percentage. Um, so they are actually quite insulated. I, I would say that if now used car prices start to normalize, then we should see the opposite. We should see volumes go, go up because the total loss ratio should tick up and we'll see average selling prices go down. 
So it's a bit unclear how the company will come out of this period because it's difficult to, and even management has said that they cannot predict what will happen when the used car prices go down. So they know that they are somewhat protected, but on the margin side, obviously there can, there can be an impact because it's more profitable if you are growing in price than if you are growing in volume because volume has a lot of costs associated and it takes this like you incur the same cost if you sell a car for 2000 or 7000 in in your platform so it's a bit unclear but they are quite insulated i would say from from volatility in used car prices i don't think growth will fall off a cliff uh, if used car prices come down which they will eventually will probably yeah and it seems like and it's a give and take, but they have a bit of a natural natural inflation hedge versus their cost. If generally, I think if their input costs are rising, potentially used car prices are rising as well, and they can make mm -hmm. up that margin in that way. Uh, but our next topic here, I think this is an important one for the industry, is comp competition and competitive advantages. You mentioned the competitive landscape a bit already. If you have anything else on that, follow up, please. And then I think what people fall in love with with Copart are the multiple competitive advantages. So any thoughts on that? You talked about the land, maybe the marketplace, mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Yeah, so I think the company has four competitive advantages, uh, economies of scale, barriers to entry, uh, to real estate that we just commented on, then network effects, and then the customer relationships. So economies of scale, also have to do a bit with the yard network. So if you have a very large yard network, then you're going to be able to optimize this because the, the most important cost here is, is towing. So obviously the shorter the distance you have to tow, the more uh, the more profit you can squeeze from that, from that vehicle. So as we said, Copart has land close to the cities and that's obviously an advantage that it's very difficult to match and they maybe have a lot of yards that they can take the inventory to. So imagine if you're a small player and you have just two yards, then you're going to have all your cars there. And then when you want to tow them, it's going to be probably a long distance. So it's like a, a network of, of nodes. It's actually similar to, to Amazon in this sense. But with instead of with distribute like fulfillment networks, this is with, with yards. Um, this The second competitive advantage is the one that we... We talked about the the real estate, so it's very difficult to get the permits, especially in in zones that are close to to cities. And then you have the network effects. So Copart has millions of buyers on its platform, and they are there because Copart has the inventory. So if a company wants to attract these buyers, they first has to have to replicate the inventory, which we have just seen that it's almost impossible because to replicate the inventory, you first need the customer relationships, and then you need the yards to put that, those cars in. So you need both things. And, and even if you have like the inventory, you're going to have to convince buyers to switch because they are used to Copart's service level. So, um, and customer relationships, I think, I wouldn't consider it like a very strong competitive advantage, but I would say, I would put it in there. I, I wouldn't consider it moat, but I would consider it a competitive advantage because um, insurers are known for not being the most flexible customers. So obviously it's very hard that they change something that's already working and all the implications that that might have, not only in cost, but also in customer service. So if if I'm an insurer, I have individual, I, I can be the, the customer of an insurer. So if the process goes, goes smooth, then I'm not going to switch. But if the process doesn't go smooth, then I might be inclined to go to another insurer. So obviously they care a lot about the service and that they get. So I would say those are the four competitive advantages, which if you ask me are for an upstart, they're almost impossible to replicate, not only for the regulatory mode, also because it requires a lot of money. And, but if you like, if, if you ask me about the competitive advantage advantage of Copart compared to IAA, which is a rather, a rather large play in the industry, I would say that the difference had been purely execution, like, but execution for a very long period of time. And that's, for me, that's also a mode. So management that knows the business and has the right strategy, obviously it's, it's a mode because they are, every year they are 
leaping forward uh, compared to the to the competitors. So that's why Copart, with, through execution and strategy, has provided a much better level level of service uh, to insurers than IAA, and that's where they are taking market share. I don't think that they are going to take all the market share from IAA, but I do think that Copart is it's a much better company operationally and and also financially. But that's another topic. You just kind of led us into this question that we got from Twitter. Um, so when we, we put this out, we got a lot of feedback on, on questions that people wanted answered. And they mentioned that, which was the relationship with insurance customers if they continue to take market share. So I guess, do you think there's any concern from insurance, insurance customers if Copart continues to take market share? Um, how do you How do you look at it? Uh, I guess, how do you look at those dynamics? Okay, so right now I would say that there's no concern because it's exactly like it's precisely the insurance companies that are giving the volume to Copart. So obviously that right now there's no concern, but will this evolve to be a monopolistic industry? I highly doubt because if that's the case, like insurers are not going to give all the leverage to Copart. Because that can have two bad consequences, in my opinion. First, you are subject to price increases and you basically have nowhere to go. And second, Copart can get complacent with its service levels, which is even worse because then your customers may may leave and go to uh, to another insurer. So I don't I think Copart can continue to take market share from IAA, but I do see this as an oligopolistic industry going forward because insurers know that they cannot be at the mercy of one company and and only and also looking forward imagine that something happens to copart like in in a black swan event and then you cannot count on them then it's going to be you don't have another option so i don't think it's going to evolve to a monopolistic industry now i got one follow-up on that we had a few questions on this from twitter so i think it just we're going to sum it up into one and it is the acquisition of IAA by, I think the company is called Richie Bros. Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Just your general thoughts on that and how this can affect this industry, because I know that could be, I don't know if it would be disruptive, but it's a big change if IAA goes mm-hmm. and becomes a partner with another company. Yeah, so I think I have quite a radical view here because I think All it's right. going to be <laughs> positive for Copart if the acquisition goes through or if the acquisition doesn't go through. So if the acquisition doesn't go through, IAA has basically said, okay, we cannot compete against Copart because like they are winning, we want to get acquired and maybe try to find synergies with another company and and try to, to compete that way. Um, that's if we remain in the status quo, because I think Copart will continue to win there. Then if, the, if Richie Bros ends up acquiring IAA, I think they are going to milk IAA. Because if you if you listen to the call from the acquisition, it's so obvious that what Richie Bros wants is the land that IAA has for their business. Like they they are they resale use machinery. So they obviously the the land is also useful for them. And I don't know if after that call, my my feeling was, whoa, all the synergies, possible synergies that you're going to find here, they are all going to accrue to Richie Bros and not to IAA. So they're basically going to milk IAA. And this happened to IAA already. They were owned by CAR, uh, K-A-R, if I'm not mistaken, um, before going public a couple of years ago. And... Basically, the the owners milked the company. They started paying dividends to themselves. And so I think it's going to be, they're not going to do it through dividends, but I think all the synergies will accrue to, to Richie Bros. And it was a bit telling in, the, in, the, in that call that the Richie Bros CEO said that, so, so before saying this, I think the it's not going to work well because Richie Bros doesn't work with insurers and insurers are the main customer for IAA and Copart. So you, there's no synergy there. 
Like they are not going to insurers are not going to want what what Richie Bros has, and it's not going to be easy to penetrate. Like to go and say, hey, now now that I'm with Richie Bros, I'm a better company. Insurers are going to say, yeah, but I don't care about Richie Bros. Like they are not. I I don't work with them, so there's not way to simplificate and. The the worst thing probably was that the Richie Bros CEO said that she used to work in insurance. So that means that she has she had good relationships with the insurers. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to make the difference. Because the service service is what matters here. It's not it's not that you have a relationship with with someone that or that you used to work in an insurance company. And obviously. I'm not the only one that thinks that that acquisition is not going to go well because a lot of Richie Bros shareholders are pushing against the acquisition going through. Uh, majority shareholders, they think that they are, and, and they actually put some pretty good bull cases for Copart in their in their letters because they were saying that IAA is such an inferior asset to Copart and that basically it's impossible to compete against Copart right now. And unless so, if you're losing the focus because Richie Bros doesn't know how to run a business such as IAA. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I don't, I, I think you're probably right. I don't think insurance companies are going to get rid of a really good service just to, you know, do a favor for someone who used to be in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you mentioned that revenue growth has been really strong over the last five years, especially for a business that's probably kind of the, the narrative is that it's a boring industry. What do you think will be the big growth drivers moving forward? Um, is it kind of just more of the same or is there any other kind of opportunities that you see down the road? So I'd say they are, there are two main growth drivers. One is international and the other one is uh, the, the rise of technology in cars. So Copart started some years ago to tackle international geographies. And as the model is kind of new there, it's running into some white space. So that's that's one. And that's obviously important because right now, so Copart, Copart's buyer base is international, but most of the volume right now is being sourced from the US. So when they start to source this volume closer to where the buyers are, then that obviously has uh, implications to for buyers and for Copart's margins. So I think that's that's one of the growth drivers. The other one, it's kind of a strange one because technology is at the same time a growth opportunity, but at the same time a risk for for Copart. But I'm I'm gonna talk here about the growth opportunity, and then we'll talk maybe about the about the risk. So at car, as cars get more advanced, they get easier to total and. Does they drive more volume to Copart? So the rationale here is that if a car today has a minor bump with a car in front, that bump will that accident, that minor accident is going to break several sensors and cameras, which are pretty expensive components to repair. And not only are the components components more expensive to repair, but repair shops are getting increasingly consolidated, so they have more uh, bargaining power against the, the insurance companies. And also they need higher skilled labor because the repairs are more techy, so to say, because you have more sensors, cameras. So the repair costs in labor are also going up. Um, so then going back to the formula I talked about earlier, if repair costs increase, then that's going to be to make it easier for the cars to end up total because the, the insurer is going to probably lose less money, lose less money by paying the pre-accident value and just uh, totaling the car. It's also true that more technology makes accidents less severe, but Copart doesn't rely on accident severity if when you have a minor bump, then the repair costs are like $3,000 or $4,000. So I think that's going to be a pretty large tailwind. And management also says that they expect total loss ratio to climb up a lot uh, as the fleet gets um as the fleet shifts to a more modern vehicle vehicle fleet okay it's quite interesting oh ryan you have sorry follow up there well i guess one of the and maybe maybe this is a quick answer but one of the one of the big (laughs) driving cars right ryan are are you going on yeah (laughs) one of the big risks that people called out on twitter and they said you know what happens in a world where full 
self-driving prohibits all accidents um, or, or reduces accident frequency. Do you think that's a risk at all? Well, I think it's obviously a risk. The question here is when does this risk come? Um, and I think that's actually the difference between a bull and a bear on Copart. I think there's no doubt that Copart is a very high quality company, um, but obviously it commands a high margin. And when a company commands a high margin, then the focus should shift to the terminal value and not what the company is going to do in the next five years. So obviously, uh, we're not going to have autonomous driving and in 100% of the fleet in the next five years. But if the market sees any kind of risk, then the multiple might be cut in half, for example, because obviously it's a, it's a risk for the company. But in my opinion, there are several hurdles to autonomous driving. So the first is the technology. Um, the technology is still not sold and it continues, it's continuously being delayed. I'm not going to say who is delaying it, but I think everyone knows. Um, then once this is, uh, once the technology is sold, then you also have a regulatory change to make because who is going to assume the blame of an accident? Is it going to be the company? Is it going to be the, the individual? And I think this is going to be harder than it looks to, to tackle, especially because insurers are going to make sure that that they don't lose a lot of money with, with the new regulation. And then when both things are solved, you have to replace the entire vehicle fleet in the US, which right now is around 13 years old. So that means that it will take around 13 years to replace the whole vehicle fleet at the current, at the current um, replacement rate. Uh, this, of course, assumes that everyone trusts autonomous driving, which I don't think will happen, to be honest. I think when it's introduced, a lot of people won't trust autonomous driving for like, basically you are putting your life on the line. When it's when it gets very, very good, then maybe we'll, people will start to, to trust it. But the thing is that to make a significant dent to co-parts volume, to co-parts volumes, you need to have a large majority of the fleet in autonomous, like 10% is, is not enough. Because obviously other cars can crash against the the autonomous cars. So I think that's obviously as a co-part shareholder, I have a strong view on this. And I think that in the next 20 years, autonomous driving is not going to be a risk for co-part. So I, I obviously invest. I don't think I'm not trying to project, uh, project out 20 years. But if I'm going to be invested in co-part for, say, 10 years, I need to look 20 years out because obviously the, the ending multiple is going to take into account the next 10 years. Um, so I, I'd say that it's it's a risk, but I think it's still very far away. And in the meantime, it's a tailwind for Copart because all of the prior... Um, so you have uh, ADAS and then you have autonomous driving. So as you, and, as you advance in ADAS, that's a tailwind for Copart. So if a car becomes a microchip or a semiconductor chip, because it's that's where we're going. Like you have a lot of sensors, you have a lot of infotainment in the car. If that happens, that's a tailwind. And then you can have a terminal risk in autonomous, which I think is very far away. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting that the bear case might be, well, this business is going to get destroyed in 25 years. Uh, that gives, yeah. you know, <laughs> the, the, it gives the company quite a bit of time to figure out what their business model will be uh, during that. And the world can change a ton in that way. And then that kind of leads us into the next part here, which is management. Uh, thoughts on the management team? What do you think of the co-CEO structure? It seems like you think they have built up a great culture here. And I'm curious why you think so. Mm -hmm. So I think, obviously, I think management is great. But and I don't think this is only a perception. So if you look at uh, the operational gap that Copart has created with IAA, that's obviously been management. So management has been great for the last years because if not, they wouldn't they wouldn't have won against IAA. Um, Willis Johnson, the founder, has a significant stake, and he's still involved. He's obviously not the CEO, but he's still uh, on the board, and. So obviously that's great too, because you could, the best alignment of interest is when there's high insider ownership. Um, management undoubtedly thinks long term. I mean, when you listen to a Copart earnings call, you listen you listen to the word decades quite a bit, 
I think that's not normal in corporate America to to listen to the word decade or 20, 30 year periods, because that's where Copart is, is, is aiming at. Like, for example, when they have um, the significant cash position and no debt, it's not because the business model cannot have like cannot weather a bit of debt. Obviously, Copart could be more efficient with it with its capital structure, but that's management saying that they want the company to survive for a long period. And I know that there's a lot of discussion around the efficient capital structure theory or whatever. But yeah, but a black swan doesn't care about your capital efficiency structure. Like yeah, look at Carbon. I mean, yeah. yeah. A black swan can wipe you out, even if you think you are prepared for it. Like, who would have thought? Who would have made a capital efficient structure, like the perfect capital structure, thinking that we would have a pandemic? Like nobody. So obviously, if you actually want to be protected against everything, then you have a lot of cash and you don't have debt. That's and that's what management has done. In fact, when they saw that interest rates were going to climb. They retired 400 million in debt. I think that they have they, that, that they had, and they incurred a prepayment penalty. But they said that it was the best choice, seeing that where interest rates were going. So the the co CEO structure, I think it makes sense. Although I am pretty sure that the co CEO structure is mainly on paper because Jeff Jeff Liao is basically running the company, and Jay Adair is more on the strategic side of things and on the international business. So I would say that most of the CEO tasks are falling on Jeff and not on Jay. And also there's a bit of criticism because Jay Adair may retire soon and many are criticizing this move because he is quite young. But I mean, he has been working for Copart since he was 19 and he has created a lot of shareholder value. So. My my take is that I think he deserves to retire whenever he wants. And actually, his compensation structure is quite interesting because the company pays him $1 in salary and then stock options, but only if on the vesting date, the stock is above a certain uh, price, above a certain price. And the price... I cannot remember exactly the numbers, but they are quite aggressive. So if the company does, if the company's stocks doesn't do well, then he gets no stock options. And the rationale behind this was that the board argue that it was basically impossible to compensate someone that has almost a one billion stake with a salary of say ten million dollars. And I agree here because the best alignment is to have a large stake. And obviously, if you have one billion in stock and you are getting paid 10 million in salary you're not going to do to care much about the salary you care about the stock that can make you a lot of more money than than your salary so i think management is is great and the best thing is probably the the long term thinking and and also that they are very humble and i think that's very important for a company that is already leading the industry because complacency is the worst thing that can that can happen to you what do you think of the buyback program? Do you, I guess, do you care about it much? They're they're more periodic, it looks like, than kind of putting it on the back burner and just doing a certain amount every quarter. Do you prefer that? Um, I actually do, because uh, when you see when I see periodic buybacks, that just tells me that management is buying when they have to be buying. So not it's it's like that they are taking the responsibility for those buybacks. If you see periodic buying, then management can say, yeah, we buy every quarter. So we didn't know, like, it's like put on, on this, on autonomous mode. <laughs> like I don't do anything and I just like hit the buy button every quarter. But Copart, I think has been very aggressive twice with buybacks. Um, and I think they won't do buybacks unless the, the stock Creators and I think this is also uh, a positive because that means that you are somewhat protected from a stock drop. So, for example, I'm going to put here another case. Texas Instruments now has 20 billion approved for for um, uh, buybacks. So you know that if the stock goes down a lot, management is going to turn the buybacks on because they remain also profitable in the, during the downturns. So you you are kind of 
you don't need to buy the tip because management is going to buy the tip for you. So I think that's that's um, pretty pretty positive. Although management did say that they have the cash the cash position just in case in some in the future they will have to use that cash to to buy back stock or or to whatever. But I prefer this to a to a more software approach where the software companies just buy every quarter. Yeah, and somehow their shares outstanding still go up, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another day. Uh, this is the class. This is almost. This is one of those classic, uh, as some people might call it, the compounder stocks, where people looking for competitive advantages, people looking for high quality, love this company. Never sell. I can see why. Never sell. Team. You know, all all that type of uh, narrative around mm-hmm. that. However, when you look at the stock, clearly it is at a high earnings multiple. So, how do you balance that when kind of valuing a company like this? Does it is it one where you have to be very patient and say, look, you might not be there might might not be buying opportunities. It might be they might be few and far between, but this is one where you get a good buying opportunity and then you never sell. How how do you kind of look at it? Yeah, so so valuation is always a bit a controversial topic. Mm, I think in many cases when you see high um, multiples, valuation multiples. In some cases, they might be inflated because actually the company's competitive position or the returns that uh, the company is generating, not they don't have a high probability, but there's a reasonable probability that they might be competed away in the future. Here, I think that we have to, I don't think right now the company is a screaming buy, obviously, but we have to take into account that Copart is re- reinvesting a large chunk of its excess cash and is doing it at high returns. And those returns are quite insulated from competition from what we've discussed. Um, Like even when IAA and Copart were both um, with an equal market share, the returns were were good. So obviously you can look ahead and think that Copart 10 years from now will still be generating significant returns, especially because it's, not a, it's not a, a company that AI can maybe uh, impact a lot. So most likely they will they would benefit from AI more than more than um, suffer an impact. And then if you couple a large reinvestment rate with high returns and a long run long runway ahead, then that's that's actually the essence of compounding, right? So you need. You don't only need high returns and and a high reinvestment rate, but also to be able to maintain that reinvestment rate in the future. I think Copart has all three. Uh, also, I think the multiple is a bit misleading because Copart has also seen a lot of uh, an impact from inflation, from towing and labor. So the earnings are a bit, so revenue has been growing at a nice pace, but earnings have not kept up due to this a bit margin compression, but I don't doubt that uh, margins can get to where they were. So, but it's what I said before, when one is investing at such high multiple, the most important consideration is the one of terminal risk. Like, I don't think if you're investing in a company that's 30 times earnings, you should care about what the company is going to do next year. Well, maybe the market is going to is going to make the the stock price drop if earnings are not good. But if the long term is intact, then that's not going to be a real driver of your returns. But if you invest at a company at thirty times earnings, and there's a terminal risk that appears, and your multiple resets to ten times or fifteen times, then over a ten year period, it's going to be quite hard to have good returns because basically you are getting your the multiple cut in half. Um, so the difference between seeing Copart as a, okay, like right now, I wouldn't say it's a screaming buy. It was a screaming buy maybe a couple of months ago, just like uh, mostly every company's, uh, every company. I think Copart, the bottom in, the bottom in October was $50 and it's right now at, thir- at 80. So that's a significant run. Um but I think that if you, if an investor wants to hold this company, they need to have a very strong opinion on autonomous driving. Because if not, it's going to be very difficult to hold this. Like 
at the minimum doubt of autonomous technology being solved, then you're probably going to scared. Uh, like you're, you're gonna be, you're gonna be probably sell the position. So that's what I think. I think that if Copart for the next ten years continues to reinvest uh, at the same rate and at the same uh, returns, which I think it can because it has, they are very protected from competition. Then I think it's not as expensive as many as many people think. But if terminal risk doesn't, if terminal risk shows up, then obviously the margin of safety is not very high. So I think if you have a strong view on autonomous, then you might be comfortable paying a premium. And if you don't, you're going to wait for a for a better opportunity, which might come. I mean, there are people that have been waiting for Copart for a lot of years. And obviously the pandemic was a, a perfect scenario because there was no driving. So Copart dropped quite a bit, but the company doesn't typically drop that much. Even if there's like during the GFC, I don't, I don't remember how much it dropped, but I think it dropped less than the indices. And then it doesn't suffer very, very large drawdowns. So I know, for example, that uh, in my conversation with Francois Rochon, he told me that that he had been waiting for Copart. <laughs> he missed Copart and he had been waiting for a long time for Copart, but obviously didn't get to to his buying point. So so yeah, that that that's my opinion. It is, I mean, you mentioned it, the the ability for them to reinvest at high rates is kind of, I think, reflective of the stock price for people that haven't ever seen Copart stock it it's more than a hundred bagger all time uh I think the proof's kind of in the pudding there but um I guess I based off this conversation I think most people can probably tell this is a pretty high quality business obviously there's the one kind of looming pie in the sky risk which is you know no accidents anymore but uh it seems like that's not really happening because there's a lot of accidents every year what would it take for this to be a bad investment? I guess what's the pre-mortem here? So besides the fact that autonomous might arrive earlier than expected, and, and this is a this is a a risk that Copart has. So you're you're betting against um well you're betting up more than against Moore's law, but you're betting against uh Moore's law and then obviously that all the time that it gets to like the vehicles, the vehicle fleet takes to get replaced. That would be probably the main risk. And then the other risk for me is complacency, which I think is, this is the risk for any company that's leading an industry. When you are the leader, then obviously the probability of falling complacent is much higher. And if they fall complacent, then maybe who knows, IAA might take market share in the future. Right now, it, does, it, it seems like impossible, but you never know if, if management gets um, complacent. I think probably another risk would be Copart diversifying or diversifying to other sectors, because I think there's plenty of opportunity to grow in the industry that they, that they excel at. And there are obviously some adjacencies that are that makes sense. So for example, this is interesting because IAA, if it gets acquired by Richie Bros, then Richie Bros is saying that they are diversifying to the to the salvage market, which I think it's very difficult for them to do. But at the same time, I think that Copart would be better diversifying like the probability of Copart diversifying to the used machinery market and being successful is higher than someone going into their into their terrain. And management in the last earnings call, they asked them obviously about diversifying, and and they said that they don't say no, that they are exploring things, but right now they they are not going to they are not going to do anything. But when you have yards, you have towing. Obviously, the the business models are pretty similar. The the probably the the most difficult part is that you have you you don't have insurance insurers as customers so you have to go to against another customer group but i think 
diversification would probably make make the the business worse because especially because it's there's no need to do it with the runway that you have right now in your in your core market all right well i think that's pretty much all the questions we have brett do you have any other ones looks like you're shaking your head so that is going to do it um i guess leandro our listeners are probably familiar with you already. And I have to say you are a listener favorite uh, among the Chit Chat Money regulars. But uh, SNL, number one show the last year. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. People like so, that one. Go check that, it out. That, no, oh. that, that, that's, that's due to the stock price performance right now. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, we do get a little, I mean, NVIDIA is number two with, uh, with Luke Howard. So yes, the... Uh, the, we need, we, we need yeah, to listen to our good, listeners. <laughs> yeah, the, the the listeners are a bit of a momentum indicator, but uh, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, I guess for anyone that doesn't know you or they're unfamiliar, where can they follow along with any of your work? Yeah, so uh, on Twitter, it's at InvestQuotes or on Seeking Alpha at Best Anchor Stocks. That is the, my investment research uh, service. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to do it. We want to remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capitals. Clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Leandro, for coming on the show again. And we'll see you all next time. 